Hey everyone, welcome to a new episode of the Pope Francis Generation. Paul, today we're joined by Peter Van Kampen. Welcome, Peter. Good to have you with us. Good to be here. Thank you. Now, Paul, I've never met Peter, and as it turns out, you haven't either. So we're having him on because he did an excellent interview somewhere. Can you give us a sense of who Peter is and why we're talking to him today? Yeah, I first I first ran into Peter virtually when um, uh, someone sent me a podcast interview they did with him a year ago. And I really loved Peter's story. It ties in um, with a, um, a lot of what we're talking about with Catholic social teaching. So I asked him to come on and share his story and his thoughts with us. Fantastic. All right. Well, we're going to get into uh, a little bit of Peter's bio and then just have Peter go ahead and share more about himself. Uh, the title for today is Live Simply So That Others Might Simply Live. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Pope Francis Generation. It's the show for Catholics struggling with the Church's teaching, who feel like they might not belong in the Church anymore, and who still hunger for a God of love and goodness. Your hosts are me, Paul Fahey, a professional catechist. I'm Dominic, someone who needs catechesis. Together, we're taking our own look at the Catholic Church, her teachings and practices from three views that changed our world. And those are the Kerygma, the Doctrine of Theosis, and the teachings of Pope Francis. Together with you, we are the Pope Francis Generation. Paul, over to you. Let's make our guest, uh, well, make him, invite him to share more about (laughs) uh, his his topics here. Yes. So so Peter is a a youth ministry coordinator. He lives with his wife and five kids in Rocky Mountain House, Alberta, Canada. He's the author of three books, including uh, the one that we're discussing today, Live Simply So That Others Might Simply Live. Peter, thanks for being on the show. Again, thanks for having me. Um. So, so back in the spring, um, the uh, uh, Brett Sockold, he's the theologian for the Archdiocese of Regina in Canada, um, and we've connected a little bit online. Um, he saw an article that I wrote for where Peter is titled, Is Wealth Contrary to the Gospel? And uh, he passed your name along and said, hey, I interviewed this guy named Peter a few months ago. Uh, you'll probably be really interested in his story. And... Yeah, th- that's where I want to start. Um, you you talked about in that interview um, different ways that the Lord has led you and eventually your wife and your family to live, and it's a different kind of life than at least us in the West are used to living. Um, so yeah, do you mind sharing that story with us? Sure. Uh, I grew up in a Catholic family, uh, so just part of the the Catholic world, right? I did camps and youth ministry and all those kinds of things. I studied in the seminary for a couple of years with the uh, Companions of the Cross in Ottawa. And uh, throughout all those things that I was doing, I went to a Bible college as well. And throughout all those things, I kept hearing the message over and over again that we're all called to be saints. And, you know, it's um, this is almost a throwaway line I find in youth ministry. I was at a youth minister's gathering one time and uh, the talk was we're all called to be saints. And then everyone was supposed to share on how they're already living their lives as saints. And I just kind of cringed and people started talking about helping, literally helping an old lady cross the street. I remember thinking, well, so you're a boy scout. Uh, maybe holiness requires more. Um, but I took seriously that call, right? Uh, and I have to say right off the bat, because it sounds pretentious, I do not think that I am a saint. Um, but I'm serious about... Um, trying to be. I'm serious about, you know, being dedicated to daily prayer and living my life accordingly. And uh, I guess what happened was I started struggling with this idea of uh, simplicity and just the way that we spend our money. 
Um, I left the seminary. I felt that uh, that was not God's call for me. But I remember making a resolution. I said, I'm going to continue to live a life where I'm serious about seeking holiness. That was that was my my thing. But then I went out and all my friends would go and socialize and I'd go with them and we'd go to movies or to dinner. There's a restaurant in Ottawa called Perkins and we'd all go out there and, and I would, I felt conflicted. I'd drop, you know, $30 on a night of having a good time and then it would sink in. And uh, you guys are probably familiar with World Vision and those kind of charities. There's a, there's a Catholic one based in Canada called Chalice where you can sponsor at that time, you could sponsor a kid for a dollar a day, right? Now it's a bit more, um, but a dollar a day and you could sponsor a kid and send them to school and they'd get food and a uniform. And so really transform their lives in a, in a poor country. And I remember thinking if I just dropped $30 on a meal for fun, I could have sponsored a kid for a month for what it was to have fun for an hour and a half. And so I felt, uh, I guess I felt deeply conflicted about it, but I'd bring it up with my friends and, you know, we'd talk about it and that would be that. And then the next time, you know, I would do the same thing. So it wasn't changing my behavior, but it was this sense of, you know, we talk about being holy and I think part of being holy is, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. And I would just go, am I loving my neighbor as myself? If my neighbor's starving and I'm wasting money on luxury goods. And so I kind of wrestled with it. And you mentioned my wife. It wasn't until uh, I started dating. Her name is Catherine. It wasn't until I started dating Catherine that uh, it became clear to me that something needed to change. She challenged me on it. Actually, she's uh, she's a good woman for that, right? Don't tell me about the guilt you feel. What are you going to do about it kind of thing? And so I implemented what's called a luxury budget. What I said is, because, you know, I always tithed. My parents always tithed um, and, you know, legalistically 10% of my gross income. That was my legalistic tithe. And uh, there were times where that pinched a lot, right? There were times I was a university student. I didn't have a lot of money. So to give 10% of what I did have away was a lot. Um, But then there were other times where once I gave the 10% away, I just spent my money however I pleased. And I remember at that time just thinking, yeah, whenever I want to go to a restaurant, I go and uh, if I want to buy a Coca-Cola, <laughs> I buy one. And it's just like, I don't, I don't wrestle with it. I don't think about it. I just do it. And I said, I'm going to create a luxury budget. And uh, I said, a hundred dollars a month, which now sounds like a lot to me, to be honest. At that time though, I was just like hundred bucks a month. That's what I can spend on things I don't need. And I thought, you know, I'm going to have a good social life with my friends. I'm still going to buy alcohol and buy Coca-Cola and all these things that I like to waste my money on. Um, but it triggered this weird thing in me because then when I went to buy something that wasn't just a night out with my friends, I was like, is this a necessity or a luxury? Because if it's a luxury, it's got to come out of that hundred bucks. And then all of a sudden a hundred bucks wasn't that much when I wanted to buy new clothes. And then I got engaged and I was like, uh, engagement ring. Is this a necessity or a luxury? Um, your audience will be happy to know I went with necessity. (laughs) Um, But you buy a house and you're buying furniture and you're like, gosh, I could get a secondhand couch for free or next to free, or I could buy a new couch at a hundred bucks a month. It doesn't go very far when you're buying these things. And so uh, I guess long story short, I I wrestled with it. uh, And through wrestling with it, that's how I discovered 
simplicity, which I understand. I've, I've read that article that uh, you were referring to before, Paul. Um, I understand this is something that you already knew about intellectually, but for me, I had to kind of go through the transformation and then discover that this is what the church taught. Yeah, that was something that that really <laughs> struck me about your story was uh, the way I heard it was the Lord put something on your heart and you responded to it. And then only later, because I think you shared how it was you were talking about this at a conference or to your youth ministry kids and you started studying Catholic social teaching and you're like, oh, this is what the church has taught all along. Um, whereas for me, it was, I'm an, I like, I like reading. And for whatever reason, I like reading papal encyclicals. And I got really frustrated six, seven years ago with American politics. So I started, I'm like, there has to be a better answer. So I start reading papal encyclicals and I'm like, oh, what the church is asking of us is something radical. What the church is asking of us is to live life in a very different way than everyone else around us, Um, which then challenged me. Now, personally, I worked for the church for seven and a half years, and um, now I no longer work for the church. Now I'm I'm just a student uh, with with four kids and a fifth on the way. Uh, I have never had much of much of the luxury of having a lot of excess wealth. But what the Lord challenges me is, but you do have a lot of things you don't necessarily need. Yeah. Um, I may be far from rich, but I have an overabundance of, of stuff and an overabundance of, of, of luxury. And what does generosity more than that? What does justice look like um, in that setting? Actually, that's um, when you talk about that uh, youth conference, it was a young adult conference, university students. Um, I think you have focus in the United States, right? Is that a Catholic group? Yeah. We have have something similar in Canada called CCO, Catholic Christian Outreach. And so we were speaking at a conference for them, my wife and I, and it was Lent. So it was a Lenten retreat. So we did, you know, prayer, fasting and almsgiving. And my wife actually had to prepare the teaching on almsgiving. And she went to the catechism just to, you know, look up some quotes on almsgiving. And uh, that's where she came across this teaching. We felt convicted for ourselves, but we didn't realize that it was church teaching. You know, you kept seeing it in scripture and, and feeling that, but we didn't know it was church teaching until she looked it up. And uh, if your audience members want to look it up, it's in the catechism, uh, chapters 2445 and following, where we found these or sorry, paragraph 2445 and following, that's where we found a few of these things. But my wife um, ended up printing off these little cards that people could put in their wallets that would remind them of this. And this dovetails nicely with what you just said. Uh, It was St. Gregory the Great who said, when we attend to the needs of those in want, we give them what is theirs, not ours. More than performing works of mercy, we are paying a debt of justice. And so she gave him these cards and said, keep these in your wallet. And then when you go to open your wallet to pay for something, you see this card and you go, hmm, it would be, this is the hard teaching. So I'm just going to go straight for it. Okay. It's an injustice to buy luxury things when other people are going without necessities. That's the hard teaching of the Catholic church that 
Again, I studied in the seminary. I went to Bible school. I was part of the Catholic world forever. I listened to everything on Lighthouse on that little rack. Do you have the CD racks in your churches <laughs> oh, there too? Yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. We, we all listened to all those CDs and, and, and nobody had told me this. And I thought, how is that possible? So actually, at first, I thought I must have been wrong until I started doing the research. And then when I started doing the research, that's what prompted me to write the book because I thought somebody needs to say this. And I was able to find a couple of other books that say it, um, but not written for people at my level. You know what I mean? They're written for monks or or high academics. And I just thought, no, regular lay people who have five kids need to know that the call to simplicity is for them as well. Yeah. Yeah. So I've taught on this um, several times in the past few years. And in Pope Leo's encyclical, Rerum Novarum, he, he kind of spells out, he has like three tiers. And the first is what you need to survive, um, housing, food, things like that. And then he says, what's proper to your state in life? And then he says, everything else, everything else belongs, again, a sense of justice, not a sense of charity belongs to those who don't have it enough in those first two tiers. Um, But what I often find when I teach that is part of your experience of this is the first time anyone's ever heard of this. Most of the time, that's people's response. Like, what are you talking about? This is totally off my radar. Um, And the other is a real... um, wanting to get down to the nitty gritty of, well, what's in that second tier? What is actually proper to my state in life? um, And what isn't? And I see it go in a couple of different directions. Um, One is, well, that's really confusing. So I'm going to invite the Lord to speak into that and help him direct me and make and make those choices. And the other is, well, that's too confusing. And they just kind of throw the whole thing in the air like, I can't figure this out and kind of walk away from it. Um, and I think that, I mean, that's part of the hard work, right? Is the Lord doesn't call everyone to live in poverty. He only calls a few to live poverty. But he calls Christians to live simplicity. And that's living within what's necessary for your state in life. But how do you figure that out? First of all, I want to... <laughs> echo what you just said about poverty and simplicity. I often say, um, uh, not everyone's called to be celibate, but we're all called to be chaste and not everyone's called to live in poverty, but we're all called to live in simplicity. Yeah. There was a, as a side note here, there was a really great, it was, it was Bishop Barron. He was talking about, it was in response to, oh, the Jesuit priest, Father Berrigan, who died five, six years ago, who was a, a, a radical pacifist. He was reflecting on Father Berrigan's life, and he was talking about the late Cardinal George, who said something like, just as not everybody's called to a life of chastity, sorry, to a life of celibacy, um, not everyone's called to a life of pacifism, but we need people in the world who are pacifists to be this light to the world on what the kingdom of heaven is, what the kingdom of God is supposed to be like, where the lion sleeps with the lamb. And when I heard that, I thought immediately of poverty. Not everyone can live like St. Francis, but we need people like St. Francis who live a life radically dependent on God's providence to show us what life is supposed to be like in the kingdom. 
Right. And that's actually, it's, it's worth clarifying because it sounds like we're saying the same thing. Oh, well, both of us are attempting to say what Pope Leo said, right? Yes. Um, we're, we're, we're saying, listen, we're not saying that we all have to be Mother Teresa's. Thank God for Mother Teresa and the countless other people who are following in that, right? Uh, but we're not all called to be that. But then that's where you have to wrestle is, um, I summarize Pope Leo's statement as live becomingly. Here's his a quote that I like from Rerum Novarum. No one is commanded to distribute to others which is required for his own needs and those of his household, nor even to give away what is reasonably required to keep up becomingly his condition in life. Yeah. So people, you know how everyone does this, right? They'll turn, they'll turn whatever you're trying to say. If they want to disagree, they turn it into an extreme absolute and say, well, yeah. if you're saying I need to just have two outfits and a bucket to pee and I reject your message. <laughs> I have two buckets, thanks. So <laughs> we have to live becomingly, but then we have to wrestle with what that is. And I want people to wrestle. Another quote that I like is um, St. Basil the Great. He says, by a certain wily artifice of the devil, countless pretexts of expenditure are proposed to the rich. So I try to balance it. I say, okay, live simply. That's clearly the church teaching. Live becomingly, but watch out for pretexts. And it's it's right there, right? As soon as people say, oh, so we're not going to live like Mother Teresa. Therefore, all these things are okay because, well, I, I, you know, I need, my kids need to be able to relate to everyone. And so they, if all their friends are going to Hawaii, we have to go to Hawaii or whatever it is. And all of a sudden we keep creating pretexts. In reality, what's happening is we're living in luxury beyond what it would be required to live becomingly. That's where I think we abuse it, right? People are afraid of the abuse of poverty going too far that way, and they just go too far and justify everything. Yeah. Um, but it's where we have to wrestle. And I don't think the church has not, and I don't think the church should define precisely what the line is. I don't think it is the same for everyone, right? You have to have an educated conscience and you have to navigate it. Yeah. And that takes, um, I've been doing a lot of research recently on conscience and abuse of conscience and things like that. And one scholar I was reading was saying, there's a temptation. Individuals have this temptation in their conscience to um, avoid the responsibility that comes with freedom. And to just follow other people's rules, to essentially let someone else be my conscience for me. And yeah. I see this all the time within, with, within the church, people who are really striving. Um, there's this like, well, I just want someone to tell me the rules. Tell me how to spend my money. Tell me who to vote for. And I just want, I don't, I don't want to do the work. And the work is precisely, the catechism talks about, the work is precisely being vulnerable with the Lord and letting him speak into your heart and speak into your specific circumstances where he, and there he gives you specific directions to move. Um, but that takes vulnerability. That takes, um, like, it's not easy work. It's easier to follow someone else's set of rules, but the Lord is asking us to have this maturity and to embrace the freedom that he's given us to do this. Uh, so there isn't a set answer. And that was something else I liked about um, the way you share your story is you don't make it moralistic. You don't imply, well, I live this way. And therefore, if you're a good Christian, 
if you really want to be a saint, everyone else needs to live this way. <laughs> but rather you're saying this is the particular way the Lord called me to. I, I do think, though, I, I do want to repeat, I do think everyone is called to simplicity. Yeah. So I just want to make sure nobody's walking away thinking, yeah, they don't have to live precisely like I, I live in a mobile home in the country, right? I'll tell you right now, I would not live in a mobile home in this city. I would feel like that was unbecoming for raising children because I've seen what those mobile home parks tend to be like, right? Yeah. Um, so I wouldn't say that would be the right thing. But you have to, you, yeah, you have to navigate it and you have to have that informed conscience. And then those boundaries live simply, live becomingly and watch out for pretexts. And then within that, you navigate. Yeah. I think one of the reasons that something like this is so difficult for maybe the first world West or maybe Americans or something is um, uh, there, there's a, how do I say this? Depending on where you live around the world, you relate to your neighbors and your community uh, differently. And so yeah. what you need to survive or what feels becoming can feel very different. So having one person from one culture telling you this is the more appropriate becoming way to live and feels completely just inadmissible <laughs> in a different culture. And I think in specifically in America, and this is me, you know, my wife and I, we're wrestling with our own sense on this and trying to figure out why does it seem so monumentally hard to walk away from this stuff. And one of the big things that we've come up with or at least it's made sense to me, is uh, the the radical individualism of living in a, a frontier country, which is America's mythos since forever. Um, that sense of, uh, I, there isn't really a community that's going to take care of me. I have to look out for myself. And the only way that I can do that is to amass as much stuff and create as much independence from being having to need other people. Um, if that is the, you know, your, your operating system for how you're approaching wealth generation, taking care of your family, uh, being successful, trying to make a stable life. If that's your operating system, then these kinds of, of discussions are incredibly hard sayings. I don't know what the answer is. I don't know that yeah. it's possible to actually have an answer if you need to change the operating system. How that is possible is probably beyond the scope of this discussion. Maybe the first thing is simply awareness. Uh, of the fact that there are teachings, like you're saying, Peter, uh, most people don't even know about them. And then using them to sort of prod us to relook at our axioms. What do we think are the basic things for, for being alive? Yeah. Um, something that really has struck me in the past year, I was reading, I think it was the theologian Larry Chapp. Um, he has a devotion to Dorothy Day. He was writing something about Dorothy Day. And he used he was quoting some of her writings and she used the word precarity, which is not a word I had uh, heard before, obviously relates to the word precarious. And it was from some letter or correspondence uh, or something she wrote. I think she was um, criticizing a contemporary, a religious order who wasn't, who she felt wasn't living up to the vow of poverty. So she was, so was talking about poverty and she says, the essence of poverty is precarity, meaning the essence of poverty is to live a life in abandonment to God's providence. It's to live a life intentionally not trying to be secure. And her writing, I, like it really opened up a lot of thought for me where so much of our life is spent, in the, at least in, you know, in the West, seeking after security. 
when in reality, life is incredibly precarious. Any one of us could die tomorrow, right? Any one of us could get struck by a vehicle. Any one of us um, could get uh, a terminal diagnosis. Life is precarious just because of what life is. So we can either try and be secure or mm, uh, have apparent security as much as we can and spend our life chasing after security, or we can live in abandonment to God's providence. And, her, and what Dorothy Day is saying, the Christian way of life is a life that is materially precarious because of the profound trust in God's providence. And she juxtaposed that with what she called bourgeois Christianity, which was Christianity that sought after security more than anything else. One of the passages from scripture that challenges me on this is it's in Luke. I don't know chapter and verse, but uh, it's in Luke. Uh, Jesus gives this parable about the man who stores up all his grain and all his, and all his sheds. And he says, you know, be secure, be content, you know, you're taken care of. Don't worry about it. And then Jesus says um, that God is going to say to him, you fool, right? You fool, <laughs> you're going to die tonight. Whose is all this stuff going to be? Because I read that and I go, holy smokes, like, I'm, I'm going to be honest, I'm not living a precarious life. If anything, I feel like my life is more secure uh, than the people who are um, many of my contemporaries, many of my friends who have the bigger houses and the bigger mortgages. And boy, if they lost their job, how do they maintain that? Right. Whereas I have a bit of a buffer. I don't have a mortgage because I bought such a small house. And uh, if I lost my job, I just have to cut off some charities, <laughs> which would be awful anyway, right? Um, and I do have money that I'm putting away for retirement. So full disclosure, I, I am preparing for those things and I'm creating security, but I wrestle with it because I'm like, isn't putting money away for retirement exactly what Jesus called that man a fool for doing? Yeah. So. Again. Well, hold on. You're not putting aside granaries that you will never be able to consume. <laughs> you know, I mean, those things only last like a year or two and, you know, they're not air conditioned. You know, they're going to get mold in them and whatever. So it's it's the extravagance of it. And not to push back, but to ask you to keep going a little bit. There is just thinking of like the Maslow hierarchy of needs. Are you familiar with that yeah. sort of triangle? Um, for those who are listening and who aren't, it's like basic human needs are like food and shelter and clean water, I think. Next one after that is like safety and security and I don't even remember, family or something. Once those layers are met, then the top part of the pyramid is like self-actualization, creativity, the freedom to you know, self-development, that sort of thing. And as long as the, the first two layers are never in place, um, you're never actually a fully functioning, free-thinking, healthy human person who can contribute to their environment uh, their community in a healthy and productive and creative way. And I would also point in, think that it's almost impossible almost to relate to our spiritual lives and to God when you don't have those lower layers. And I think human history has kind of shown that out. There are some saints who have kind of skipped that and have transcended that, but the, the rank and file, uh, dinner and my family and getting out of the weather and not being drawn into a war. These are the immediate sort of things. So uh, I think that there's a biological imperative to create, like you said, a, a sense of security, a sense of stability, but that's still under that sense of living becomingly and 
you know, what is appropriate for where you live, what culture you live, what's expected of you, you know, uh, and then what your responsibilities are, but it's dealing with that excess. And I'm sure people listening will also would, uh, wrestle with the idea as well that putting aside or saving up for a time when you're unable to provide for yourself. I don't know. I'm not even sure what I think. Maybe keep going on that. Is are are you thinking then doing that is insulating you from needing to rely on other people, such as a community or I don't know your children or friends and family? It's just, but that's not our culture. We right now don't have a culture anchored around that. I'm just curious what's coming to your mind. So, I mean, I, I guess like I have no intentions of changing my practice of saving for retirement. Let's be honest here. Okay. Um, what I'm feeling challenged by though, is when Paul brings up this idea of precarity and that we should live, I, I'm, my life isn't precarious. And so that's exactly where I'm going. Okay. And, and here's the thing. I personally have friends. I've done mission work with uh, Renewal Ministries, which is actually based in Michigan. I imagine you guys yep. know those yeah. guys. Yep, I'm quite um, familiar. So I've done mission work with those guys. I've been to Mexico and Tanzania and Kenya, and I've I've maintained friendships with people who live in poverty, abject poverty in those places. And uh, it's it still feels strange to me if my friend in Kenya says, hey, um, do you think you could help me out? I've never asked before. This happened recently. I've never asked before, but I've got this issue. Things are getting rough all over the world right now as we speak, right? Things are getting worse everywhere. And she's like, I've never faced this. I, I, I hate to ask, but can I ask? And for me to be like, well, gosh, I can't really help you right now. But to think I'm putting away money for my retirement. When I'm in Canada, we have a good social safety net. Do you see what I'm saying? And it's, this is what I'm talking about. It's I have to wrestle with this. Yeah. Where where am I living becomingly, providing a becoming retirement for myself? And where am I creating pretexts for expenditure, which I have to be aware of? And it's I think this is this is exactly where we have to live with this thing and we have to look at it. Yeah. I like that you don't draw hard lines and must-dos for others, but keep pointing us back to the first principles on these things. Yeah, um, I, I wanted to add something to what you said, Dominic, about our culture. And uh, yeah, and, and share a story about six, seven months ago, um, I left my job at my parish, my full-time job, under difficult circumstances. I was not, it was not my intent to leave when I did. And I didn't have a backup plan. Um, now, in many ways, as you had said, Peter, um, I mean, I've worked, I mean, you're a youth minister, you understand this, you work for the church, uh, you, you get accustomed to a pretty modest way of life, uh, if, if, if you're working for the church. Um, so I didn't have a huge mortgage and things like that. So in some sense, I had more freedom and, and more security. Um, but I, I left without a backup plan. And I have been overwhelmed by the generosity from people in my community and people in my family um, where someone would drop off 500 bucks in an envelope in our mailbox without a name on it, right? Um, there's something about 
this experience, which the Lord is, I mean, the Lord is still helping me come to understand of that independence, that self-sufficiency. Um, like there's something about that that prevents me from relying on the community and the grace that I've received, not just from the material support, but from having to lean into my community and having to receive from my community that has been a, a real grace. Um, so I, I don't know yet what to make of that, but there's something about this experience of the past six months that has challenged the individualism and forced me to rethink some things. I know um, when, uh, <clears throat> when we hit hard times financially, my wife has a habit of giving more money away. <laughs> um, and she'll go, oh, geez, I don't know if we can make ends meet. We better give money away. And then she goes and does it. And she usually tells me after the fact, actually. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's walking in faith, right? Like how did those apostles, how did those apostles go when Jesus said, you know, don't bring these extra things and eat whatever's put before you. And, and they walked in faith and, uh, boy, I don't, you know, I, yeah. <laughs> I do have a good job with, uh, with benefits and a retirement plan and the whole bit, right? Like, man. Yeah. I think that it's important again, just sort of reiterating my own point though. And I don't know if you are or not. I sort of try not to. Um, I don't think that we need to necessarily feel guilty about uh, those kinds of things. I think the real question is, it's a matter of what do you do with it? If you have been gifted a position um, or you've been offered or you've earned a position of comfort, I really think the question then is, what do you do with it? Um, how Maybe how do you lead with it? Or how do you take that as a responsibility to model for yourself, for your, your children, you know, for, for friends and family, um, to sort of piggyback off of, uh, Paul's story. When my wife and I got married, she fell sick, like almost the day that we got married, she fell sick bedridden with, with Lyme disease. And we had to run a GoFundMe within less than a year of being married to try to raise some income to get her some medical treatment. I couldn't believe the number of people, one who donated to the GoFundMe. It was the most, I didn't know anybody. And it just, these people showed up and they would show up with, with dinners and they would make food and just drop it off. And um, I couldn't believe that. So I think that, that what I think can happen, and this is probably, Peter, what you and your wife are now um, not just putting out into the world, but modeling. You're also, by giving away, we're also creating that space for others to see that and to model that, to mimic that. Um, by us being vulnerable, we also create an opportunity for other people to give and to be vulnerable. We're, and in that sense, we're starting to break down this general American cultural sense of, I don't need other people and I don't want people to know that I have needs. Hmm. But then that vulnerability of, of being able to share, being able to ask. And there are some people who are really good at it. And there's some who are way too good at it uh, and they need to stop. <laughs> but then I think there's, you know, maybe especially if you're, if you're a man, like, you know, it's a point of pride. It's a point of ego. It's a point of, maybe it feels like dignity to be able to kind of eke it out and, and provide and so on. Um, I don't know. There's, I, I think it's also a chance for, some, for growth there, for humility there as well. But it also, I think it's a chance for leadership to allow other people to uh, to give, and it's a new way of entering into communion with them. 
Yeah. Anyway, back over to you, Paul. I'm we're kind of off off topic here. Yeah, th- there was a couple of things uh, things in the past couple of years that have really been bouncing around my head, and I want to throw them at you, Peter, just kind of for your thoughts. Um, one is in the research that I've done about this teaching from the church. Um, I've reached the conclusion, and I wrote this in the in the in the article I wrote last year. I think the, the conclusion I've reached is that simply being wealthy, regardless of how that wealth was obtained, simply being wealthy is contrary against the gospel. And there's a part of me that sees that is so blatantly obvious when when I go into the teachings. But then another part of me is. I mean, so in, in, in Michigan, one of our, um, one of the big Catholic people in Michigan is, uh, a Catholic man named Monahan who used to own Domino's pizza and fabulously wealthy man. And has just, he, he has donated so much. He started schools. He's helped the religious community, started Catholic radio, just been incredibly generous with his money. And the way that I hear priests and I hear people talk about him, they talk about him as a man of like such incredible virtue. Now, I'm not here to talk about his own status before God or not, but there's something about, so like that's been totally normalized being like, if you're wealthy and Catholic and generous with your wealth, like you're a great person. But then I hear the church's teaching and I'm like, but you're not supposed to be wealthy in the first place. Um, And I can't... I can't quite land on a place. So I kind of want to throw that at you, Peter. What do you think about this conclusion that it's that wealth by itself is contrary to the gospel? I think it is contrary to the gospel to live in luxury, Um, but it's not contrary to the gospel to make a lot of money. So, uh, I don't want to use Monaghan as an example because it's too specific. We're not judging individuals here, right? Yep, yep. But if someone has the ability to make a lot of money and then they are generous with it and give more of it away and they live in a modest home that's becoming to their um, state in life, right? If, if you're a CEO of a major business, your modest home is going to be different than the modest home of a youth minister, right? We're not in the same state of life. Um, but I, I don't think that God wants any of us to live in luxury. And that's where I think the line is. And we have to figure out what is luxury and what is becoming, you know? Um, And I think you're right. That's that, you know, I hear people all the time. I listened to a Catholic podcaster the other day and uh, he was talking with his, his guest and he said, well, I'm going to throw you an easy one. Doesn't the Bible say that money is the root of all evil? And the other guy said, no, love of money is the root of all evil. And he said, I know poor people who are just as greedy as rich people. And it's like, yes, I'm with you, but I don't think you can say that you're living in luxury and that you don't have love of money. That's where to me, all of a sudden you actually have love of money, which is the root of every kind of evil. You can't say, you know, John says something about, um, you can't love God if you don't love the people that you see. And James says, don't say, um, go and be well fed and not take care of people's needs, right? You, you cannot say, I don't have a love of money, but I'm, I'm living in a mansion or I'm going on these luxury cruises or whatever, whatever luxury thing it is. 
I think those things are contradictory. I think when Jesus says you cannot serve God and money, I think he really meant it. And I think when he said it's harder for the rich man to get into heaven than a camel through the eye of a needle, (laughs) I think we shouldn't be so dismissive of those words. I think it's a dire warning and we are rich. We, us three, we're rich right? I'm a youth minister in a trailer park, but I've been places. I know that I'm fabulously wealthy compared to many people in the world. And I'm actually richer than most people in the world. And so the standard is high. We're rich and Jesus is warning us. And I think we need to hear that warning. Yeah. Um, When I talk about this uh, in my circles, another area of challenge is there's many people who would agree with and wholeheartedly agree and allow themselves to be challenged with what we've talked about so far. Um, but then when I go the next step and say, I believe what the church teaches is that the state has a responsibility to um, take, make sure that everyone in the community uh, has at least that first tier of what's necessary to survive um, in the common good, even if that means redistribution of other people's excess wealth. Now, the church doesn't lay out what's appropriate tax policy and uh, and things like that, but it does say there's a role for the state. And this is another area where I see a lot of contention um, in, no, this should still be a private thing. This should still be for people to discern on their own, the state shouldn't have a role in here. Um, Or, I mean, with some other people I see, well, no, the responsibility should be totally on the state so that I don't really have to make those choices myself um, because I know that everyone's taken care of. Um, So, yeah, I want you to wade into this this contentious swamp with me. The contentious swamp of American politics. <laughs> yeah, I, I haven't noticed. Is it tense there or no? Eh? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's just it's just fine here. There's nothing to see. That's good. It's the same in Canada. We all just we all just get along. Um, <laughs> I don't. I, I mean, I don't have a, a real clear picture. What's the state line? I I do think that we should. I would vote for policies. Let's put it that way. I would vote for policies that re- that provide for the basic needs for people in Canada. In fact, I would vote for policies that uh, do that all over the world. That would make me unpopular with some people. Um, I would vote for policies. I would vote for, oh my gosh, should I even go here? Whatever. <laughs> I would vote for policies that bring in more immigrants to provide people from, say, Venezuela, with a better life in my country. You know, um, I was speaking to an American friend of mine actually, and, and we were talking about immigration and he said, uh, so you want them living in your backyard? And I was like, no, um, but I do think I should have a smaller backyard so that they can have a, a home. You know what yeah. I mean? Um, so I would vote for those kinds of policies that, that equalize it on the same At the same time, the Catholic Church has consistently taught the right to private property. And what I'm talking about is within the system in which I live, I don't think voting actually solves the problems. Um, Some kids were, uh, I was 
So I'm hired by Catholic schools. We actually have government funded Catholic schools in Alberta. Um, wow. So it's amazing. I am paid by taxpayers to evangelize to <laughs> students. So uh, in Canada uh, of all places. There are uh, three provinces that have publicly funded Catholic schools remaining and uh, pray for us because the writing's on the wall, shall we say. Um, but I was, I was talking to these students and uh, they were advocating for communism. And I said, well, here's why. And this is grade eight kids. They shouldn't even be talking this way. Uh, I said, here's why Catholics cannot believe in that. And I said, but we also can't have unbridled capitalism. And the kid goes, well, what do you think is the solution? And I thought for a second, I said, Christianity. <laughs> and he's like, whatever. I'm like, no, seriously, everyone needs to have a change of heart. Everyone needs to, you know, theosis. We all need to become like God, that our will would match God's. And then we'd all be generous. And I honestly think, maybe I'm naive, but I honestly think we could live sustainably with 9, 10 billion people on the planet if everybody would live simply and share the resources, right? It's the universal destination of goods is um, one of the church's principles. I think there's enough food and goods to go around if we would live the way that God is calling us to live. And yeah. uh, it requires personal conversion instead of government coercion. Ooh, that, that almost rhymed. That should be on a bumper <laughs> sticker, that last part. You guys can uh, quote me on that one. Yeah. Um, the, that was something else in the, um, in the interview you did last year. Um, you, you brought up, you kind of compared and contrasted um, how Christians understand and emphasize and live out the church's teachings on money versus the church's teachings on, on sexuality. And there's something about this that, that, that I really resonate with, right? Like as baptized Christians, as other Christ, because of our baptism, who are called to be Christ in the world and bring about the kingdom of God in the world, our values and our lives have to be different. And we get this, um, or at least we talk about this um, in the church in the West when it comes to sex. We talk about it a lot. Um, but again, we've as we've shared here, you talk about the universal destination of goods. You talk about having to live simply. And people have been Catholic their whole life have never heard of this before. So yeah. why do you think there's that inconsistency in the way that the Lord is asking us to live our, our sexual life? And the way the Lord's asking us to live our financial life, why are we emphasizing one over the other? I don't know, is the short answer. Um, is it because in America, and frankly, can Canada is very American in our ideas, right? So I'm going to include Canada in there. Um, is it because in America, we were so reactionary to communism? Is it because, you know, our... Christian leaders, our Billy Grahams, aligned themselves so closely with one political party and one end of that politics that to suggest that we should share more sounds like a leftist ideological thing. And we identify so much with the right that we can't, you can't have a pro-refugee stance if you're a Christian because Christians are pro-life and you can't be pro-life and pro-refugee. Is that, you know, this is a huge discussion in our whole society right now. Like, how did we end up there? I think Christians reacted to communism and then we reacted to the sexual revolution. And so we talk about sex all the time and here's what the Catholic church teaches and here's our theology of the body. And everyone knows 
that this is what the Catholic Church teaches. A lot of people reject her teaching, but everyone gets it. They know this is what the church teaches. Why speakers aren't speaking up on the simplicity thing? I could speculate. I think, I mean, we're formed by other speakers, right? We, we do create echo chambers and the Catholics who become leaders are the ones who say, you know, oh, I'm really, do you remember um, when Scott Hahn and those guys, everybody was an apologist against fundamentalism. Do you remember that? Yeah. Every yep. Catholic speaker, they were all John six. Every time you went to a talk, it was about John six. Uh, and, the, and then the chastity movement and that, and I think we are due for the simplicity movement. I speculate in my book that maybe part of the reason Francis was chosen by the Holy Spirit, as I believe, uh, to be Pope is because of this. You know, right off the bat, he chose Francis as his name, you know, after St. Francis. And he said, I want the church to be poor and for the poor. I think we are overdue for an emphasis on this. Um, when I, uh, when I was arguing with some of my friends about this, you know, one of my friends said, Peter, um, I'm better educated than you on Catholicism. I went to seminary for longer than you. I have a, a master's and you just have a bachelor's. And, and I've listened to all these guys. None of them are saying this. How could you have the hubris to think you were right? And I wrestled with that. How could I? But as I read church teaching, and so that's why, again, that's why I wrote the book. Um, I, I collected these quotes and I said, no, this is, this is it. I don't know why other people aren't saying it. Um, I brought that debate. It was an in-person debate, but I, I made the mistake of bringing it to social media um, on Facebook. I've learned my lesson. I never post anything ever again. Uh, <laughs> unless it's about turtles or babies. Those are safe territories Cats. to talk about. Um, but I said something about living simply and, and this is church teaching. And, you know, I thought I had my little slam dunk tweet, boom, don't, right? And right off the bat, one of my friends said, well, I really believe in this principle. And she put a scripture quote. Again, I don't remember what the, uh, the scripture, what the exact chapter and verse was. Um, but it's the whole, when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, right? Don't sound trumpets before yourselves. So maybe, maybe it is that, Every other Catholic speaker out there whose names you guys have heard of, they're not saying it because, you know, they're so humble. They don't want people to know how much they're giving away. Um, and it, that is something I wrestle with because as soon as I get up and I, and I speak to you guys, oh, am I going to share this podcast after on social media, right? And then now I'm blowing my horn again, or I wrote a book about, oh, look how simply I live. Um, but honestly, when I do youth ministry and I tell kids that they should pray every day, I talk about my prayer life and I say, look, this is how I'm doing it. And I think I'm modeling it. Well, the Bible also says to go into your closet when you pray. And so if we're going to say, this is church teaching, this is how I do it. I think we have to start saying church teaching is to live simply. And this is how I'm wrestling with it. And I like that we're having a sincere conversation. It sounds like all three of us are wrestling with this and none of us feel like we've accomplished sanctity and none of us know where the line is. We're all... This is real Catholic men who are really wrestling with these teachings. Yeah. I, I, I think you're right about Francis as well. Like I've seen, and this is a small example where uh, he chose not to live in the papal palace, but to live in yeah. um, uh, St. Martha's, I think it's St. Martha's anyways, to live in an apartment instead. Um, 
I heard a lot of Catholics talk about how this is this is just performative, um, things like that. But also, I know that there have been multiple bishops who, since Francis uh, has been pope, who have sold their bishops or archbishops' mansion and has have gone to live on the uh, you know the apartment in the seminary or the small house on the retreat center property, things like that. Um, I mean, in some sense, you can say, well, the Pope put every every bishop in a mansion on notice. Mm-hmm. But I think more gently than that, he set an example. Um, mm-hmm. And when you read Francis, like his chapter in A Fratelli Tutti, where he talks about the universal destination of goods in private property and immigration, he's speaking with... Mm, like you could confuse his words for the words of the early church fathers. That's how forcefully mm-hmm. and directly he's teaching um, in a really prophetic way. So yeah, I, I think, I think your comment that um, Francis is the Pope for this moment, perhaps to start a movement on simplicity. Um, I think that may be the case. And it does feel like it's happening. You know, I've obviously, I've, I've been, uh, trying to live this and I've been teaching it now for over 10 years, but increasingly, or maybe we're just finding each other on the internet, right? I found Brett and then Brett led me to you guys and, and we're finding each other. But, uh, you know, I have increasingly a community of friends who are, it's weird when you write a book on something, or I guess in your guys's case, you, you make a podcast because now everybody knows what you think. And then if they disagree with you, it might be awkward. I had, um, friends of mine in Calgary who read, my book for a men's book club, Calgary's. Anyway, they read it and then they asked me to come in on a Zoom call. This was during COVID for their men's group and we could all chat with each other. And uh, I could, several of them rejected the message. They thought it was false, but it creates this funny thing, right? Are they going to invite me to their house? And then are they going to be self-conscious that they're living in a house that is uh, bigger than is needed for them? Do you know what I mean? Are they afraid that I'm going to judge them? It does create that. Um, but I'm pleased to see that increasingly, it seems like people are picking this up and saying, yeah, this is, this is correct. And it's not me saying it, everybody, it's like, everyone's kind of figuring it out, you know, and, uh, I'm just one more voice in the chorus. I mean, because it's, it's freeing and it's meaningful. Um, just in the past couple of days, uh, and I'm not sure when this is going to be published, but the week that we're recording this, it was the, the 60th anniversary of the opening of the second Vatican council just a few days ago. So I saw lots of quotes from John the 23rd online. And one of his quotes was something like the church, and I'm paraphrasing, this is not an exact quote. He's something like that. that the church needs to propose more and impose less because people are seeing the problems and the suffering in the modern world. And they're going to just, they're going to, we just need to tell them what's true and what's good. And they're going to run here because of how bad things are elsewhere. I mean, it's a terrible mm. paraphrase, but, but there's something <laughs> like that, right? Like, the consumerism and the materialism that especially someone my age, a millennial, has grown up in, we, we know the materialism doesn't make us happy, hmm. ultimately, and that, and that there's meaning beyond that. There's more meaning in community. There's more meaning in relying on God and living in such a way that you're able to see because that's something else too. Like if you're not living with any precarity in your life, 
how do you see God working to step in with his providence? I mean, those are the times where God's caring about me and my life has been most tangible was when I had nowhere else to turn. And then I saw him step in. I had this bill that was due and someone sent me a check randomly for that exact amount, right? It's moments Mm -hmm. like that where God becomes most palpable. So I think there's something like um, this, a life of simplicity is a life of freedom and a life of joy. Yes, there's sacrifices, but what what's received in return is something, at least in my mind, so much more satisfying than what's being left behind. I absolutely agree. Um, it's a strange thing. You know, uh, Mother Teresa is sometimes quoted as saying, give until it hurts. I'm not sure if that's a real quote or you know how that goes, or if it's just a, a meme. But anyway, give until it hurts. And uh, man, you think you're making sacrifices and then you just go, really? Am I hurting? <laughs> right? Like Maybe we haven't hit that point yet. I remember when we moved into the mobile home, that to me, that was, that was all right. Now we're living simply, man, I love that house that I live in now. I love, you know, and it's just this, it's humble and it, we paid it off in no time. And it's just the freedom and the beauty. And you just go, boy, you know, um, I don't envy um, the people that I guess are living in luxury. I don't look at that except when my van breaks down. Other than that, (laughs) (laughs) other than that, I don't really envy other people's lives. I'm not drawn to it. Um, you know, there's, uh, the way Catholics break up the 10 commandments, there's two of them that start with the words, do not covet. And it's something I think about a lot because I think that we, we ignore that every time we go shopping. My daughter wants to, you know, she'd be like, Dad, can I use your phone? I just want to go on Amazon. I said, well, for what? She just wants to look around. I'm like, You're just going to covet. You're just going to discover things you don't have that you wish you had. You're going to look at it for half an hour. You're going to come off and be less happy than you are now. That's the end here. And we do that, right? We shop and we compare and we watch home rental shows and we're coveting and making ourselves less satisfied. Whereas let's just like, man, let's live simply and let's embrace it and stop shopping, stop coveting. Yeah. So Dominic, before we wrap up, do you have anything? No, I think that's a great place. That's a great place to wrap. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. I, I, I wanted to end Peter with one final, um, to try and make this, I mean, this whole discussion has been really personal and really like down to earth. Um, but if, if there's a listener where they're hearing what's being said and there's and in their heart, they're being challenged or inspired or moved in some way, like this is compelling to me. Um, what first step would you suggest towards someone li- uh, living more of a life of simplicity? The one that I took is the one that I recommend. And that is the luxury budget. Uh, when I was in the seminary, there was a priest, Father Scott McCaig. Now he's a bishop. And he used to say, uh, exterior discipline leads to interior conversion. And I don't know if he was quoting someone else. Maybe he was. Um, but it's, it's, uh, it's something I live by, right? I'm not going to get my prayer time in unless I say, this is when I'm praying. I'm committed to it. And then I stick by that. And then it happens. It's the same with simplicity, just feeling the conviction because you listen to this conversation right now or you read an article or whatever, just feeling that conviction didn't do it for me. I needed to say, this is the rule for me. And then once I did, 
then I started looking at everything through the filter. Is this a necessity or a luxury? And my love for the poor grew and my love for simplicity grew and my desire for stuff, for material stuff uh, diminished. And, and it's easy for me, but you have to have that discipline. So um, if not the luxury budget, come up with something else, but the luxury budget's the one that I did. People have these, um, uh, they'll tithe and they'll raise their tithe as they make more money or whatever. I really think the luxury budget's the way to go. That's what I recommend. Awesome. So Peter, thank you so much. Um, you have a few books. The, the one we've, we've mentioned today is live simply so that others might simply live. Where can people find that book? Just on Amazon. If you look up, uh, live simply in my name, Peter Van Camp, and it'll come up and, uh, yeah, that's the only one about this. So get that one. <laughs> Excellent. Good deal. And and so again, thank you, Peter, for coming on. We also want to take a moment to thank uh, another, well, our sponsor for the first year of this this show. And they're trying to help Christian families thrive in the Holy Land. So we, we are grateful to be collaborating with them and grateful for their sponsorship. As they say, more Catholic leaders choose select international tours over any other pilgrimage company. With 35 years of award-winning travel planning, they have a track record of excellence and faithfulness, and they're a small company with a big heart because every one of their pilgrimage trips helps to support and fund their 501c3 charity work, helping Christian families thrive in the Holy Land. So if you're ready to travel or if you're looking to lead a group of your own, take the next step on your pilgrimage by visiting selectinternationaltours.com. Paul, where can people go to learn more about the show, catch up on past episodes, send you a message, and just subscribe in general? Yeah, the the, the show's hosted by uh, PopeFrancisGeneration.com, which is um, which is my own project. You can follow the newsletter, follow the podcast, um, and support me there. Um, your, your support is very welcome. It allows projects like this, conversations like this, to keep happening. There you go. And if you did enjoy this, please do hit that like button. It does help more people to hear about, well, this conversation, hear about Peter's message, learn about his book. Come and check us out at smartcatholics.com. We're the online community that uh, is open to wrestling with these kinds of discussions and the attendant doubts that come with them. Um, if you got a question you'd like us maybe to respond to in the next episode, you can drop it in the community, maybe tag Paul or myself, or go to popefrancisgeneration.com and uh, send a message to Paul there. Friends, till next time, say a short prayer for yourself and for us. And remember, don't be afraid to ask questions. Doubts can be a sign we want to know God better and more deeply. God bless you.